0: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxey, and this is ReSound.
1: You know, the, the thing with icons is not that these are the best works. I think they're the works that mean the most to us as
2: people.
3: So, well, look, give it to me. I'll fix it.
2: What makes you think you can fix
3: it? Well, I'm the
4: only one in here that hasn't got paint all over them. <laughs> I mean, Lucy was woven into the fabric of our everyday existence.
0: Resound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio icons we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on Resound.
5: He said he would be murdered before this book appeared the autobiography
2: of Malcolm X. He revealed the secret. What's the secret? that maybe black folk really don't like white people.
6: You know what I mean? Can you hear me? Yeah. Let's go. Take two.
1: You don't have to be a jazz fan. You almost don't have to know anything about jazz for Miles Davis' Kind of Blue to create a certain image in your mind.
0: The I Love Lucy show, the autobiography of Malcolm X, and Miles Davis' quintessential album, Kind of Blue, are all icons of American culture, and each has a backstory that explains why it's forever etched into our collective consciousness. Lucky for us, our colleagues at Studio 360 from WNYC in New York have been delving into these stories through their series, American Icons. Since 2004, they've explored over 30 touchstones of American music, television, film, and literature. Today on ReSound, we'll bring you three standouts from the series and hear from Studio 360 senior editor David Krasnow, who explained what makes an icon an icon.
1: You know, there's a few criteria that we juggle here, and sometimes it's a work that kind of breaks open a form or first realizes what a form can do. The kind of lowest bar for me is if you say that that name of that work to you know, 15 people, how many of them recognize that name? I mean, Americans have short memories, and some things, you know, fall into the dustbin of history. Sometimes great, great works fall into the dustbin of history, and we don't keep that attachment to them. The question of why one thing is selected out, kind of in the popular mind, is that is kind of the question we're trying to solve, I think, more than saying, here's a really great thing that you want to know about. I think of us as trying to figure out from an infinite number of works that have been produced in this country, which are the things that are going to yield us the most in understanding kind of who we are as a people, how we think about the world, and a lot of the time what our conflicts are. They're often not just about celebrating greatness. They're often about what kind of conflict or problem is packed into that work.
0: That was David Krasnow, Senior Editor at Studio 360. Let's get to our first story from the American Icons series. It's an excerpt from an hour-long exploration of I Love Lucy, presented by host Kurt Anderson.
7: I'm Kurt Anderson, and this is American Icons. Today's show is all about the most famous woman on TV ever, Lucille Ball. Well,
3: Ricky, what about me?
7: Or, I should say, Lucy Ricardo. Thank you. Her show, I Love Lucy, helped invent television, and it redefined what women on TV could be. Think of the TV moms of the 1950s.
3: Now, should we all have some supper?
7: Like June Cleaver on Leave it to Beaver.
3: Well, Beaver, isn't your shirt buttoned up nice and neatly?
7: And Margaret Anderson on Father Knows Best. Would you
3: like some hot chocolate, Betty? I'd love some, Mother.
7: Me too, Margaret. All right. These were proper ladies whose only ambition was to teach their children good old family values, moderation, patience, manners. And then there was Lucy, clinging to the ledge of her apartment building, dressed up as Superman. Come
8: on in here, I want an explanation! Can you teach me to fly?
4: <laughs> Lucy! Lucy is this wonderful bad girl, but who lives the life of a good woman because she craves
7: things, she wants attention, she wants her own way. Gina Bureka is a professor at the University of Connecticut.
4: Lucy is a hot tomato, a beautiful woman who is trapped in domesticity, both because she wants to be and because the circumstances of her existence as a 50s housewife wouldn't permit her to be otherwise.
7: Do you remember the first time You saw I Love Lucy?
4: No, I think it was probably in utero. I think I I Love Lucy was filtered through the amniotic fluid. (laughs) I mean, it was ubiquitous. I mean, Lucy was woven into the fabric of our everyday existence. We would talk about Lucy. We would play Lucy. We could quote whole scenes. These were rehearsals for life as far as we were concerned. It wasn't until much later that I started to realize the sort of Lucy effect on the lives of women.
7: One of the things Baraka teaches is feminist theory.
4: Lucy, in her own incredibly wacky way, was always going to be the star. And she was going to be the star in the same way that, you know, the heroine in an Austen novel, in that she's not like all the other girls. The other girls may be pretty and well-bred and, you know, minding their manners, but the heroine is the heroine because she breaks out of the chorus.
7: And Lucille Ball really did break out of the chorus. She started out as a Goldwyn girl, a leggy dame, just one of a dozen. On the studio lot, she watched comedy geniuses like Buster Keaton and the Marx Brothers up close. Here she is talking to Merv Griffin on his talk show in 1973.
3: No, no, no one ever said, make her a star. Someone said, she doesn't care if her face gets all dirty and she makes faces and screams and yells a lot. And the other girls are very busy being beautiful. When there was something to scream about or wear a mud pack or or do something physical, I was available, and they weren't. And that's how I got started.
7: Think about the classic bit where Lucy's starring in that commercial for a health syrup called Vita... Vita...
8: Vitamita Benjamin. Thank you. Yes, Vitamita
3: Benjamin contains vitamins, meat, vegetables, and minerals.
7: It also contains a ton of alcohol.
3: It's so tasty, too. It tastes just
8: like candy. <laughs> So why don't you join the
4: thousands of? She's lost people any kind of sense of composure. She's leaning over. Her eyes are crossing a little bit. She's sort of a little belligerent. you have to do, you have
8: to take a whole after
4: every. And she's tapping the bottle like you know somebody's just come out of a speakeasy. Like she's gonna you know put it in her garter. So everybody get a bottle of this stuff. <laughs> She's winking. <laughs> She's barely holding her head up. We've lost the dignity. It's
3: Miguel,
8: mm-hmm.
7: Are you all right?
4: Oh, I feel fine,
8: but you know it's hot in here.
7: It really is a brilliant
9: piece of TV. And the sitcom writer Jeff Greenstein says we've never quite gotten over it. The beauty of the show is it was shot live, and you really get the sense of an audience that is totally intoxicated by what this woman is doing, and an actress who is getting off on the reaction that she's getting. She's astounding. And then there's the
7: time Lucy and Ethel bet their husbands that they can make it in the working world and end up frantically wrapping chocolates as they zoom past on a conveyor belt.
4: And Lucy starts putting them in her mouth. They're like chipmunks storing the food for winter. Look, look, they can't eat anymore.
7: So what Charlie Chaplin had done in modern times Exactly. 15 years earlier.
4: And it's also the idea of, even in the 50s, the idea of watching women eat is something you never see. Right? Uh, Let let alone stuff their mouths with chocolate. Stuffing their mouths with chocolate. This is, now she's putting them in her brassiere. It looks like her breasts are heavy with the chocolate.
7: And by the way, she's wearing pearls. And she's wearing <laughs> pearls.
4: Well, she she looks good in pearls. Fine, you're doing
10: splendidly. Speed it up a little.
7: But this episode ends, like every episode of I Love Lucy, in total abysmal failure. Lucy is humiliated. She's bullied. Sometimes even spanked by her husband. The joke is Lucy smacking her head against that very low glass ceiling again and again and again.
3: I've done it again. Chalk up another (laughs) boo-boo. No, honey. We might as well face it, Ricky. I'm a big, fat flop.
5: No, honey, you stop talking that way. You're getting an inferiority complex.
3: No, I'm not. I don't need a complex. I really am inferior.
7: (laughs) In this day and age, is that something we ought to be laughing at? So, Net, I love Lucy, good for women, bad for women. <laughs> Which? <laughs> let's pretend we're on Fox News and MSNBC, okay?
4: Good for women, bad for women, good for women. Yeah. Anytime, absolutely. Anytime a woman does something besides making a cooing noise and washing a dish, she's making a feminist gesture because she's doing something. I really do like the fact that even though she gets sort of redomesticated, you know she's going to come back.
10: But then she was always tamped back into her place. And, you know, the nature of that humiliation in each episode is, I think, part of what
7: I found really unnerving about it as a child. Emily Nussbaum grew up to write about television for New York Magazine. She still doesn't love Lucy. Lucy she
10: shrieks and wheedles and whines and she's heightened in this way and then she gets spanked and humiliated.
7: She refuses to be a Stepford wife and instead is like a a child. Right. But
10: I didn't laugh when that happened. Like, it wasn't funny to me.
4: Lucy was always about desire and the idea that she wasn't trying to figure out what other people wanted. She wanted to do what she wanted to do. That's a seditious act. That's seditious for anybody in the 50s, but especially for a woman. This desire
10: for attention is totally detached from any desire to practice singing or dancing or anything like that. It's not I respect Lucy, who would watch that? that's the joke of the show is that Lucille Ball is a talented comedian but Lucy Ricardo is a completely untalented hack who is just a a ball of need and that part does seem very modern because people always you know there's this big cultural thing right now where young girls are just constantly attacked for wanting to be famous for being famous as if this was created by the internet but actually when you watch the show one of the things you see is that in the case of Lucy Ricardo she wants to be famous and Hollywood glamorous for ways that are really very much part of that larger continuum with Paris Hilton. Like she wants to be famous for being Lucy, you
7: know. And she was famous for 15 minutes over and over and over again. Exactly. Emily Nussbaum also refuses to grade I Love Lucy on a curve. She says, compared to the new shows you can watch any week, the comedy on I Love Lucy just doesn't stack up.
10: When you rewatch it, you recognize just how straightforward and simple it is, how one thing is raised and then it's flipped over and then there's a little surprise and then somebody gets a cream pie in their face.
11: I remember as a child thinking it was like lame and old and square.
7: And black and white.
11: And black and white. Yeah, I remember thinking I Love Lucy was like one of those many black and white things that people keep telling you is so great. Uh But then you watch it and you're sort of bored and annoyed by it.
7: Mindy Kaling's a writer and producer for The Office. She also plays Kelly Kapoor on the show.
11: I never really understood why this, like, kind of young, good-looking interracial couple would, like, hang out with these, like, old people. Hirsch.
7: I always kind of liked Fred Ethel.
11: It wasn't until my boss at The Office, like, refused to talk to me, Greg <laughs> Daniels, until I had seen some Lucy episodes. So I YouTubed some. And it is amazing. Turns out
7: Lucy's unshakable quest for fame is a blueprint for some of the most popular characters on TV today, like Michael Scott, the boss on The Office. Would I rather be feared or loved? Um, Easy, both. I want
10: people to be afraid of how much they love me.
11: Someone who is not a performer, but who wants to be desperately and who is terrible at it.
10: Hey, what's the deal, Michael? Why are you spying on our computers? Oh no, everybody! Oscar's gone crazy. What other ghost stories do you have for us? That I'm a robot, <laughs> I will destroy everything in my path. Actually, we just uh, we
8: boop, beep, act- bop. okay. Oh.
11: And in some ways, are like delusional. <laughs> yeah, you know, Lucy is very delusional and very resilient. You know. Both of those characters could get very depressed if they actually sat and thought about their situations, but they don't. They're immune to that, and I just think that's just so watchable.
7: Sitcom writers like Jeff Greenstein are channeling Lucy.
9: It's like the Rosetta Stone of comedy. This stuff is in the DNA and in the brain of every comedy writer. Greenstein has written for Friends and Will and Grace and Desperate Housewives. All you had to do was say the word Lucy in the writer's room, and people instantly understood the kind of comedic flavor it was going to be. We're going to reach a certain level of zaniness by starting from a fairly credible setup, but we're going to be orbiting Pluto by the end of it. I'm so sorry that I'm late, but (gasps) hello,
0: kitties.
3: (laughs) What's with that? It's a hydra bra, water filled for extra perkiness.
9: (laughs) We did an episode of Will and Grace called Das Boob. Uh, which was the exploits of Grace on the day she decides to try a water bra. And and we knew when we were building this that this was a Lucy-style episode.
3: Will, what are you doing? I think you've sprung a leak. What are you talking about? (laughs) We've got to get out of here before we see John!
7: (laughs) That is textbook Lucy. She just wants to be noticed. But she always ends up making a fool of herself.
12: I'm Liz Lemon, and I lost my virginity at 25.
9: If there's somebody working the Lucille Ball vein of comedy right now on television, I'd say it's Tina Fey on 30 Rock.
7: In which a brilliant writer-producer plays a hack writer-producer.
4: My work self is suffocating my life, me.
9: She's playing a kind of slightly bubble-headed heroine. I hate my feet. Not as smart as she thinks she is. I
4: eat
10: emotionally.
9: A little bit of a wannabe, trying to keep a desperately unhinged life under control.
12: And once I had a sex dream about Nate Burkus, but halfway through he turned into Dr. Oz. Has that ever happened to you?
7: The thing is, we're laughing with Liz Lemon and Lucy Ricardo at the same time that we're laughing at them. It's both, it has to be both. The humor in Lucy has lasted because as ridiculous as she can be, we've been there.
9: The desire to sort of make something of yourself, to be visible, to be fabulous, to be more than, uh, it's one of the things that makes her a relatable character even 55 years later.
13: She probably helped a lot of, you know, screwballs, embrace their inner screwball and make it work for them. She wasn't a square. She was someone that the
7: freaks could relate to as well.
13: Hi. Hey. Hey, and gentlemen. let me just look out and see who is here tonight.
7: Justin Bond is a songwriter who used to perform in the duo Kiki and Herb. Kind of tru- Bond played the outrageous alcoholic Chanteuse Kiki.
13: Yeah, no. I tell myself too many times, I don't shiver and just keep that big clock trap shut. That's why it hurts so bad to hear the words that keep on falling. Kiki was definitely, you know, she owes a big debt to Lucy. But I think any comedian does. Tell me. I grew up in western Maryland in a small town called Hagerstown there. And my best friend and I were obsessed with Lucy when we were maybe... In seventh or eighth grade, we just would sit in her room on summer days and read stories of Lucy and biographies of Lucille Ball. And I think we could relate to Lucy's double life because we were just, you know, miserable. We were miserable teenagers in this wasteland suburban neighborhood. And yet my responsibility was to look happy. My responsibility was to be a positive reflection on my family. The Martian episode encapsulates the thing that I liked the most about Lucy, being a um, sort of transgendered, queer kid. And that's the one where Lucy and Ethel are hired to dress up as Martians. Well, when, when Lucy and Ethel come in with their DLA-bobber antennas, and their outfits are sort of like wrestling outfits.
8: What are you? They look like women from Mars. Yeah,
13: They have their own language, which is amazing. They see the bourgeois sightseers and dance around them and look at them and inspect their clothing and the hats and sort of She's smacking this middle-aged man. They become the freaks, they become the aliens, and Lucy and Ethel are, for that moment, in charge. I just was tickled. I thought it was a great example of friendship and of how you can pull one over on simple-minded people. It portrayed queerness, as far as I'm concerned. It portrayed outsiderness, otherness, and so it gave people, I think, a blueprint on how to, if they were paying attention and they cared, how to deal with otherness in a respectful, loving, rational way.
0: That was an excerpt from Studio 360's Hour on I Love Lucy, produced by Jenny Lawton.
1: I think my favorite part of the whole I Love Lucy hour is the argument, essentially, which you know, we kind of constructed, those, those people weren't in the same room, uh, between Emily Nussbaum and Gina Bareca.
0: Studio 360 senior editor, David Krasnow.
1: Both incredibly smart people, very concerned about women and the depictions of women, who feel completely differently about this thing, both theoretically and also personally and viscerally. I'm, I'm always interested in who doesn't like this, who's mad about this, and if someone is still mad, you know, 20 or 50 or 150 years after it was made, that is a sense of an index of the work's power to us today. And I think there are things not to like about every American icon. I think that's part of why they work and part of why they still interest
0: us. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. Support for ReSound comes from Bridgeport Pasty Restaurant and All-Electric Food Truck, serving handheld pot pies in Chicago since 2011. Details at bridgeportpasty.com. Coming up after a break, more stories from Studio 360's American Icon series. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxey. Today, we're listening to stories from Studio 360's American Icons series. When it was released in 1959, Miles Davis's album Kind of Blue was well-received. But there were plenty of other popular, important jazz albums, like Ornette Coleman's The Shape of Jazz to Come. But over time, Kind of Blue has come to be regarded not just as Davis' best work, but as the most influential jazz album of all time. For Studio 360, producer Ave Carrillo set out to understand why.
14: When I was a senior in high school, one of my coolest friends gave me a cassette of Kind of Blue. I was already pretty happy with my Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush at the time, so it stayed in my glove compartment, along with about a dozen parking tickets. Months later, though, I finally popped the tape into my crappy car stereo. And for the next year, I listened to that album every single night. Sometimes I'd listen twice. Three years later, I moved to New York City to study jazz piano. Kind of Blue is considered to be the jazz album. It's a symbol for everything jazz can be. It's hip, but it still draws from tradition and it's avant-garde, but completely soulful.
15: Look, I don't think anybody in that band in that situation could even think that uh, this would come to what it has come to.
14: The drummer Jimmy Cobb played on Kind of Blue, and he's the last musician alive from that session.
15: You know, we just figured we made a good record, you know, but we made a few good records, you know, so... uh, We had no reason to believe that this was going to be better than some of the other ones we made, you know? So uh, who knows how that happens? I don't. In
14: 1944, Miles Davis moved to New York City to study at the Juilliard School of Music. He dropped out after only one semester, and one year later, he was playing in Charlie Parker's band. Pretty soon afterwards, the frantic sounds of bebop were starting to feel old, and Miles was one of the first to defect.
16: And the world is his oyster. I mean, everything is laid out right there in front of him. He can do whatever he wants, and so what does he decide to do?
14: Ashley Kahn wrote the book Kind of Blue, the making of the Miles Davis masterpiece.
16: Well, he goes in the totally opposite direction of where bop and post-bop jazz had been going. ¶¶
14: Miles was thinking about a larger band, a slower pace, and a much lusher sound. He started working with Gil Evans, a composer and arranger. They were still working with bebop, but also bringing in the influences of French composers like Ravel and Debussy. And the result was birth of the cool. And the style would come to be known as cool jazz. As Miles got farther away from bebop throughout the 50s, his trumpet playing was getting even more spare. Instead of fast runs up and down the scale, he would just blow a few carefully placed notes, and then he'd hold them. Miles started to record Sketches of Spain in March of 1959. It was his last album with Gil Evans. And in April of the very same year, he brought in his band to record Kind of Blue.
5: Take two, so. Wait. Okay. Hey, when you raise up all this too, man, you get, oh,
6: yeah. (laughs) You know, your floors squeaks, you know. You know what I mean? Can you hear me? Yeah. Let's go.
13: Here we go.
14: Take two. Um, What do you remember about the recording session?
15: Nothing. Nothing. I say it was normal. Hmm. Recording session, the guys came in. I think I was probably first one to be there because I had to deal with the drums and uh you know with the engineer where they want you set up but I understand the engineers had that room down to uh you know down to the nth degree they knew exactly what the sound was in certain places every inch of that place well at least I got heard anyway
14: The kind of blue session, the tunes he had written were almost like his own trumpet playing. That spare, open sound he had developed, translated for a whole band.
16: Sketches that could have fit on a uh, on a napkin, you know, was basically what he gave them to look at and said, "Now I want you to work over these scales, these chords, etc." And that's it.
14: Those little sketches on napkins were actually a revolutionary way of playing jazz. It was yet another movement started by Miles Davis called modal music. Think of it this way. It's like instead of painting with a tiny little brush, lots and lots of little details, musicians were given a big wide brush with which they could paint much more abstractly. If, I, if you had any direction for this tune, was, it was just like, okay, this is a medium tempo. That's all. That's it.
15: That's it. You know, usually they look at it and say, you'll hear it. <laughs> In
14: 1958, Miles had met the pianist Bill Evans. Bill, not Gil Evans. And he fell in love with the crisp, sparkly quality of Bill's playing. And Evans introduced him to other classical composers like Rachmaninoff and (laughs) Katchadorian. Ashley Kahn thinks Bill Evans was largely responsible for the music in Kind of Blue.
16: The whole idea for Kind of Blue came out of this relationship which lasted only eight months on the road where Bill Evans was part of the Miles Davis band of 1958.
14: But arts critic Terry Teachout thinks this is something Miles Davis was looking for for a long time.
17: He had had other pianists and fine pianists, I mean, Red Garland was a wonderful pianist, but it's quite clear that Evans played in a way that spoke to something within Davis and brought out a potentiality for a kind of simplicity and beauty that he'd never been able to realize.
14: Certainly not the only important musician on the kind of blue recording. John Coltrane and Cannonball Adderley were both on saxophone. Paul Chambers was considered the best around. But for one song called Freddy Freeloader, Miles brought in a different pianist, and his name was Wynton Kelly.
15: Miles knew exactly what he wanted, and uh, Wynton had what he wanted for this one. Winton would be so much funkier. We got back to Winton because that's the way we were feeling about it most of the time anyway.
14: Off the record, and maybe not so off the record, a lot of people say that the two piano players played to racial stereotypes, that Bill played like a white guy and Winton played like a black guy.
16: And audiences
14: also weren't used to seeing an integrated band.
16: So, of course, Bill Evans was a little bit like a fish out of water with Miles' usual you know, audience, and so he went through hell,
15: you know, for eight months. We would go to places and people would be used to seeing Red Garland, you know, and they'd look and see Bill and say, whoa, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this picture, you know, so uh, so then he was feeling that too, I guess, for a moment, you know, and then uh, and in, uh, in the band, Miles used to say funny things to him, like he was only kidding, you know, he would say funny things to him. Bill, uh, you know, he felt funny about it, you know, because he didn't know whether Miles was kidding or not, you know. What would he say? I'm not going to tell you that.
14: (laughs) 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 Nobody tells me
5: any of these stories. Why is that? that?
14: (laughs) I don't understand. Is it because of my young years? Yes, what it is. I'm too too innocent. (laughs) That's
15: right.
14: (laughs) I think I can handle it.
15: Yeah, but I don't know if anybody else can, so I'm going to leave that alone. (laughs)
14: What Jimmy Cobb's getting at is that Miles essentially was a jerk. Not all the time, but often enough to keep people around him on edge.
15: You know, I don't like a comfortable person. You know, I can't be around them if they're just, you
18: know, and it's... There was something about Davis's whole approach that was meant in part to make his audience feel a little uncomfortable.
14: Professor Gerald Early wrote a book called Miles Davis and American Culture, he thinks Miles's attitude was an important part of a persona he created for
18: himself. Particularly at the time for a black man to have this kind of disdaining attitude towards his audience— in this kind of uh, sense that I don't owe my audience anything other than coming out here and playing. I'm not going to be some kind of entertainer. I'm not going to tell jokes. I'm not going to smile. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to play, and that's going to be it.
14: And Miles's persona was a brilliant marketing tactic.
18: Part of it was that he, he kind of um, took advantage of being both an insider and an outsider, he was, despite the way he, he presented himself, accepted by the white critical establishment. I mean, Miles Davis was a musician who made a lot of money. His music was very well re- regarded by um, the white critical establishment. But on the other hand, he still maintained himself as this outsider and as this rebel. And the fact that he was able to balance these two things for as long as he did in his career make this music was really quite an incredible feat.
14: The combination of the drug-hardened, mean but brilliant musician was irresistible to Miles' audience, his black and white audience. In the 1950s, most black jazz fans were into soul jazz, artists like Les McCann and Jimmy Smith.
18: Kind of Blue was a a bit of an anomaly because it it sounded so different from those other kind of jazz records. But yet, all the people I knew, all the black people I knew loved that record. I mean, they just loved Kind of Blue. It was a record that if you had it on you, it showed that you had taste. I mean, it was a record that seemed perfect in having a kind of intellectual veneer with being hip having a real sense of emotion to it. And, and people thought that if you like Miles Davis, that you were a young man who had intelligence and uh, you were an okay kid.
14: In the 1970s, by the time Miles was helping to invent rock fusion, Kind of Blue was still cool. And when the writer Pearl Kleeg wanted to learn more about jazz, of course, one of the first albums she was given was Kind of Blue. And she listened to it on the way home to Atlanta.
3: And by the time I got to Atlanta, I was so in love with that music that I didn't play anything else for weeks.
14: But what could be ignored in the 50s and 60s? Pearl could not ignore in the 70s. She read Miles's autobiography, co-written with the poet Quincy Troop. In it, Miles was unrepentant about his treatment of people. He shamelessly admitted to beating his wives and pimping in order to pay for drugs.
3: So I wrote the piece, Mad at Miles, because I was really angry at him for living the kind of life that made it impossible for me to listen to that amazing music and not think about what he might have been doing the morning he recorded that music. I tried to just forget about it, but that didn't work. I kept thinking about Cecily Tyson hiding in the basement of her house while the police were upstairs laughing with Miles. I wondered what she was thinking about crouched down there in the darkness. I wondered if thinking about his genius made her feel less frightened and humiliated.
14: Miles has always been at the center of this debate. Should we look at an artist's life in order to judge the work, or should we just judge it on its own merits? That question will never go away, and it's probably why we're still fascinated by Miles Davis. It's that jarring contrast between the beautiful music and the hard, sometimes awful person who made it. But none of that debate explains how Kind of Blue became the best-selling jazz album of all time. What other album imparts hipsterism and in the knownness 45 years after it was made? In 1959, when Kind of Blue appeared, it was really just a blip in the jazz world. Because in that same year, John Coltrane recorded Giant Steps, what could be considered bebop's final statement. Also in 1959, Ornette Coleman played a two-week gig at the Five Spot, and suddenly the Free Jazz Movement was born. And again in 1959, Charles Mingus recorded Mingus Aum, signifying a new way for large jazz ensembles to play. The fact is, 1959 was an incredible year in music, and if you know jazz, you'll know every single one of those records. But if you don't know jazz, you can still get Kind of Blue.
17: It's like Shakespeare, even if you haven't seen a Shakespeare play, even if you haven't seen Hamlet, you've heard a lot of Hamlet, and the first time you see it, you hear all the quotations in it. And kind of blue is like that.
18: Because so my kids had
17: zilch interest
18: in jazz. I mean, they just thought, oh man, he's going to come playing these, you know, these long, boring records." That was the one record that really clicked
16: even those ears that are used to the most avant-garde and experimental sounds of jazz, when they go back to this, they hear more and more.
17: It's not insistent, you know? It doesn't, it doesn't make you feel a certain way. It lets you feel the way you feel. It lets you come to it, and uh, a lot of art doesn't do that. A lot of art doesn't leave room for you, and kind of, kind of blue leaves room for you.
14: Kind of Blue inspired me to move to New York City to study music, just like Miles Davis had done, but I realized pretty quickly that I'm no Miles Davis. However, I did meet a nice jazz musician, and we're married now, so I have Kind of Blue to thank for
0: that. Kind of Blue was produced by Ave Carrillo for Studio 360's American Icon series.
1: Since the focus of the series is really on why these works mean so much to us as people, we really try to emphasize personal storytelling.
0: David Krasnow, Senior Editor on the American Icon series.
1: Hearing from people individually about why a work matters to them is very, very important to us. And so we've really tried to balance, sort of feel like sometimes we're on a tightrope between getting a kind of scholarly, big picture, authoritative sense of why the work is important, but also keeping it very, very grounded in real people telling us why something matters to them.
0: When the autobiography of Malcolm X was published in 1965, the New York Times called it a brilliant, painful, important book. And more than 30 years later, Time magazine included it on their top 10 nonfiction required reading lists of all time. The book is a milestone in America's struggle with race. And our next segment reveals just how everyone who reads the book has a different relationship to it.
7: This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson.
12: Reading Jane Austen. I'm I'm not challenged in the same way that I am reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. You know, like books that change your life, make you think about the world. And I didn't get that from Jane
7: Austen. Pride, Prejudice. In this edition of Studio 360's American Icons, we're looking at the autobiography of Malcolm X. Americans are always saying, if only we could finally have that national conversation about race. Well, try reading the autobiography. It had a few things to say about the subject 45 years ago. It's a book whose condemnation of white people, even if you know it's coming, is still shocking to read on the page. And some of the language you're going to
2: hear in this hour may not be suitable for our youngest listeners. I grew up in a working-class household, you know. Uh, father delivered mail for a living. My mother cleaned toilets for a living. She eventually became a supervisor of people who cleaned toilets. Uh, and my father can't stand white people.
7: Eddie Glaude is a professor of
2: religion and African American studies at Princeton. You know, we would watch footage of the civil rights movement, and he would just literally curse at the television. So it was
6: wonderful and liberating for me to find language for it. Unless we call one white man by name a devil, we are not speaking of any individual white man. We are speaking of the collective white man's historical record. And I remember as a young country boy from Mississippi
2: crying out, oh, my God.
6: We are speaking of the collective white man's cruelties and evils and greeds that have seen him act like a devil toward the non-white man. I have my goatee to this day because of that book. I will
2: never shave it off. He revealed the secret. What's the secret? That maybe black folk really don't like white people. You can't help but be a little giddy when you read that.
7: One of the first white journalists to be let in on this secret was Peter Goldman, who was then a newspaper reporter in St. Louis. Back in the early 60s, he wrote a series of articles about the nation of Islam.
13: A couple of months after that ran, I got a phone call and uh, a voice said, This is Minister Malcolm X. I'm going to be in St. Louis to visit the local mosque. Would you like to meet with me?
7: They met at a Muslim coffee shop and talked for more than two hours.
13: Obviously, I didn't share his theology. It's very hard for me to accept being a blue-eyed devil, which was the central part of the— And I have blue eyes (laughs) and was never so embarrassed by them. But nothing he said— was spoken in anger, nothing was threatening, nothing Nothing made us tense. Leaving out the, the theology of the Nation of Islam, I thought the indictment was undeniable.
7: The uh, indictment of what white, white America of, did to black people.
6: Yes, exactly, exactly. The white southerner, you can say one thing, he is honest. He bears his teeth to the black man. He tells the black man to his face that southern whites will never accept phony integration. The Southern white goes further to tell the black man that he means to fight him every inch of the way, against even the so-called tokenism. In 1972, almost
7: a decade after the Civil Rights Act was passed, 13-year-old Marcellus Blunt moved to a new school, an almost all-white school on Staten Island in New York City.
5: I was the token. I always felt as though I was the token. What was I doing there? Baldwin uses the phrase, a fly in the buttermilk,
7: One day early in the fall semester, Marcellus was running late for class. As he got close to school, he was confronted by a group of white kids.
5: They barred my entrance, surrounded me, and started punching and kicking me. I fell to the ground and was beaten severely. And as I was being beaten, they shouted, nigger, nigger. That's a term I had heard. But it was the first time I had been called a nigger by a white person. And to be called a nigger was even worse than it was to be beaten up. That experience actually taught me, and this connects to the autobiography, that I never really knew what whites around me were thinking.
7: Today, Professor Marcellus Blunt teaches the autobiography to a class of undergraduates at Columbia, most of whom have never seen raw racial hatred firsthand.
5: To shock the reader, are there those of you who were offended? Yes.
12: Uh, I was pissed. (laughs) (laughs) I was pissed because, I I don't know, I, I couldn't see how he was really gonna be able to reshape things working under the same model. Segmenting people, and I was surprised because I'm like, if it's not pissing you off, you need to read it again.
7: Julie Poole is a creative writing major who took Marcellus Blunt's class this past spring. I,
12: I was enraged for multiple reasons. It's funny because I, you know, I felt implicated when he talked about the white devil, and there were a couple times when I, I wanted to throw the book across the room.
6: I never will forget one little blonde co-ed after I had spoken at her New England college. She must have caught the next plane behind that one I took to New York. She found the Muslim restaurant in Harlem. I just happened to be there when she came in.
12: I mean, I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to understand why... I don't know why he felt the way he did.
6: Anyway, I'd never seen anyone I ever spoke before more affected than this little white college girl. She demanded, right up in my face... Don't you believe there are any good white people? I didn't want to hurt her feelings. I told her, people's deeds I believe in, miss, not their words. What can I do? She exclaimed. I told her, nothing. She burst out crying and ran out and up Lennox Avenue and caught a taxi. Julie Poole grew up in Seattle, but a couple of years ago, she moved to Malcolm's old neighborhood.
12: It's funny, cause I mean, I moved to Harlem. I've never seen so many black people in my life. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. I am the face of the white gentrifier, you know? I'm that person. And I felt this, like, this palpable um, tension, this racial tension. Like, I'd be walking at home at night and see, you know, a young black man walking my direction, and I would feel like this wanting to veer a little bit away. And I want to understand what I'm afraid of.
7: (laughs) What Julie did understand in a personal sense was Malcolm's fractured childhood and how it shaped his early life.
12: My father died when I was young and my, my mom and my sisters and I moved around a lot. So I related to Malcolm X on that level what it's like to lose a parent and how hard it is to keep a family together. You know, I thought about that when I was reading the book, and I wonder how things would have been different for him if he would have been able to stay.
7: We're talking about the autobiography of Malcolm X today in Studio 360's American Icons. A turning point in the book comes after Malcolm is sentenced to prison for burglary, He spends an inordinate amount of time in solitary confinement, but it's there that he's introduced to the writings of Elijah Muhammad. He joins the Nation of Islam, and here the autobiography becomes the story of Malcolm's personal redemption and self-improvement. And it's the reason the book is still one of the most popular reads among inmates. It's the prison part of the book that I remember most vividly. Gerald Early is a professor of English at Washington University in St. Louis.
18: When he goes to prison, he starts to read particularly uh, the dictionary.
6: Finally, the dictionary's A section had filled a whole tablet, and I went on into the B's. That was the way I started copying what eventually became the entire dictionary. That
18: struck me enormously. I just thought, oh, wow. He was the first person to make becoming intellectual, becoming learned, seem very, very masculine to me.
6: I suppose it was inevitable that as my word base broadened, I could for the first time pick up a book and read and now begin to understand what the book was saying.
18: I mean, for a long time, I was going around as a kid thinking prison as being some kind of university. I mean, I thought people went to prison and read books and they came out and they were like Malcolm X or something. But it's absurd. The
6: story at face value simply doesn't make sense.
7: Manning Marable says this is another instance of Malcolm and Alex Haley taking some license with the story for dramatic effect
6: because this is a man whose mastery of language was astonishing, even while he was in prison.
18: I think in some ways it was kind of translated, I think, for many people to think that anybody who was going to prison, in essence, was rebelling against the status quo, against the society they were in, and the like, which I think was a misinterpretation. That part of the legacy got really emphasized when the Black Panthers came on the scene because the Black Panthers reinscribed, kind of romanticizing the connection with prison. And sort of fetishizing the gun. Right, exactly.
6: Malcolm X advocates armed Negroes. What was wrong with that? I'll tell you what was wrong. I was a black man talking about physical defense against the white man. During the 1960s, there was a constant tension between Martin Luther King Jr. and
7: Malcolm X, between nonviolent resistance and resistance by any means necessary. If you couldn't get a gun, Malcolm advised learning martial arts to, quote, show you how to break a white man's neck. As the decade got crazier and increasingly violent, Malcolm's message started looking more and more persuasive.
19: In April 1968, Dr. King was assassinated, and I got very, very angry, as did a lot of young black people, and went down to 125th Street when they were rioting, and threw a brick and ran from the cops and declared myself that night a black militant.
7: Jamal Joseph is a writer and film director, but in 1968, he was just a 15-year-old kid from the Bronx dying to become a real man and a Black Panther.
19: We were riding out to the Panther office in Brooklyn on Nostrand Avenue from the Bronx, so this was a long ride plenty of time to psych each other out. Another guy says, man, you know you gotta kill a white dude to be a panther, and the other guy says, no, you don't have to kill a white dude, you gotta kill a white cop, and you gotta bring in his badge and his gun. And I'm like, what, inside? But whatever it takes. I don't care, we get to the panther office, and they're having a meeting. Came and sat in the meeting, and the person was reading the 10-point program, which talked about employment, and housing, and and into police brutality, and by the time he got down to point number five, I'm not really listening to what's going on. I'm just pumping myself up, you know. I'm a black relative, and I'm not a punk. I'm a black relative. I'm not a punk. Solestice. In the middle of this person talking about education, I jump up and I said, "Choose me, brother. Arm me. I'm ready to kill a white dude right now." Police and their Whole meeting stops, and he calls me up front, and everybody's looking at me. He's sitting behind a wooden desk, and he reaches into the bottom drawer of the desk, and the door creaks, you know, so old desk, so it sounds like tales from the crypt, like the crypt opening, and he reaches down. My heart's pounding, and I'm thinking to myself, look how far down he's reaching to that desk. He's gonna give me a big-ass gun. And he hands me a stack of books, and I'm looking at the books, and in the books, of course, the autobiography of Malcolm X. And so I figured this must be a test, and I'm supposed to respond to the test question. And I said, excuse me, brother. I thought you were going to arm me. And he said, excuse me, young brother. I just did.
0: That was an excerpt from Studio 360's Hour on the Autobiography of Malcolm X, produced by Derek John and Lou Olkowski for the American Icon series. I asked David Krasnow, senior editor, just where the series is heading.
1: You know, I think, I don't know if I would say that it would run indefinitely, but every time we come back and start talking about a new round of the series and looking at the possible topics, you know, we are still weeding through piles of great things that we would all love to do and saying, okay, well, I hope we get around to that next time. Um, Through music and books and film uh, and television shows, I mean, we keep kind of retelling certain really essential stories. I feel like that the terrain, as much as we do, the terrain just, you know, never gets smaller.
0: That was David Krasnow, senior editor on Studio 360's American Icon series. Studio 360 released a third series of American Icon stories in the fall of 2013. This summer, they'll release a new episode about M.A.D. Magazine. What's your idea of an icon? What objects, books, buildings, albums, TV shows would you like to hear more about? Send them to us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. And we'll send them on to our colleagues at Studio 360. The weather is getting warmer you know what that means t-shirt time might i suggest one from the third coast our most popular design is back with the word listen printed in braille across the front and our logo on the back check out the sassy red and the deep teal to say nothing of the soft gray onesies you'll have the hippest baby on the block check out the colors and designs at thirdcoastfestival.org You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. Today's episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk. The program is curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear nearly 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with LEAD funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.